Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I think, you know, certainly in the break that I've had this year of being at home, coming back to work with a renewed sense of, of play and just how lucky I am to, you know, be in an imaginary world and appreciating the fact that it's it's pretend, you know, <laughs> the stakes of pretend. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Push the Envelope. I'm the AV Club's editor-in-chief, Patrick Gomez, and today we will be welcoming Gugu Mbatha-Ra to talk about her new movie, Misbehavior, as well as look back at some of her most famous roles, including Beyond the Lights, The Dark Crystal, and Black Mirror's San Junipero. But before we get to that, I am joined by one of the AV Club's editors, Alex McLevy, to talk about the train wreck that was the 1989 Oscars. Thank you so much for joining me, McLevy. I could not be more happy to talk about the 1989 Oscars. <laughs> this is this is a favorite of ours. We're going to get to, you may be trying to remember exactly which one's 1989, or maybe it instantly is in your head, um, but we're going to get to that in a second. First, I, I do want to get a little bit, uh, stay a little current. The reason the 1989 Oscars came up uh, for us is that it was the first time the Oscars went hostless. And that was a, a point of topic earlier this year when um, the Oscars went hostless again after that Kevin Hart debacle. So, you know, to give context to our conversation in a moment, uh, McLevy, what what were your thoughts about about the hostless Oscars of, of 2020? I mean, a hostless Oscars this year could only go up from the last time they attempted this. Uh, it was, you know, <laughs> the best you can say about it, I guess you could say it was relatively efficient. You know, I'm, I tend to be a bit old school. I like I like the comedy. I like the song dance, man. I like somebody who comes out and puts on a show and is sort of responsible for being the ringleader of the night. Um, but I will say, you know, it didn't go as badly as I thought it would. Let's put it that way. Yes. And for reasons we will get to in a moment, uh, the brevity um, of not having a host was was very refreshing for this most recent one. And of course, looking forward uh, to the 2021 Oscars, which at this point traditionally happens in March. This one has been pushed uh, way later in, in April. There's a chance at that point that we'll miraculously have a, a vaccine that is widely distributed and people are going to be able to be in person in large groups again. But that's very, very unlikely. Um, so I think the chances of it, you know, I thought in normal times, I think they maybe would have continued to go hostless with the Oscars. But do you see any world in which they could do a hostless virtual ceremony? I mean, it's it's certainly possible. I don't think they're going to want to. I think given the fact that it's probably going to once again be much akin to what we've seen with other ceremonies this past year, uh, where they've had to do these sort of weird socially distanced, you know, awards programs. I think they're definitely going to want some comforting face in front of everybody, you know, someone to sort of reassure everybody it's going to be okay. Uh, even if it's not going to be okay, they want somebody there to make us all feel like it's a little bit better. So yeah, I I, I agree with you. I don't think there's a, a chance in hell that there's going to be a hostless one. Yeah, I mean, Jimmy Kimmel might just host literally everything <laughs> for, <laughs> yeah. until we're, until things are back to normal, which I, I do think that he did a, a good job with everything he had to handle with with the 
Emmys earlier this year. So, so we will see. Um, all right. But we didn't come here to talk about this year or next year. We came to go back in time to 1989. The, the first time, uh, the Oscars went hostless, as I mentioned, but that wasn't the only thing that made this Oscars different. Uh, so here's a few things before we start talking about all the things that went horribly wrong. Although maybe some of this was part of it going horribly wrong. Um, back in 1989, the Oscars were on a Wednesday night. And uh, this year they were produced by Alan Carr, who was the producer of Grease, uh, produced uh, um, La Caja Faux on Broadway, uh, was a big Broadway producer, so he loves a good song and dance, which we will will make sense in a second. Um, it was also the the first time that we really got a red carpet ever uh, in the way that we now get a red carpet where there's, you know, it's it's taking place for a long time leading up to the ceremony. It used to be just a thing that happened for about 10-15 minutes, like people walked in, said hello, took pictures. This really was the first time that they made a big deal out of that. And it also was the Oscars that separated the Best Picture nominees out into, into presentations over the course of the ceremony. And it was uh and it was where we got the line the oscar goes to which i like you know seems like something that should have existed always but it really was the <laughs> one that became that like made sure that it was it was the introduction to every award winner but we're not here to talk about those elements of the 1989 oscars we're here to talk about um the two things you probably remember this for, if you do remember this Oscars, which is Snow White and Rob Lowe's opening musical number and the Stars of Tomorrow musical number uh, that had a host of um, some recognizable faces now and some that you have no idea who they are. They were all deemed the Stars of Tomorrow. But uh, I guess let's start at the beginning. McLeavy, why was this a, a topic? I, I had asked the staff if they had things they wanted to come on Push the Envelope to talk about, and you almost instantly um, came to me with this with this Oscars. W- what is it about this that, that you just find so fascinating? I do. I, I love a good slow motion train wreck. And uh, <laughs> the opening of this Oscars, I mean, if you go, for those who are listening right now, if you go to Google and or YouTube, I should say, and search, you know, 1989 Oscars opening, the top result you're going to get on YouTube is a clip entitled The 11 Minutes That Ended Alan Carr's Career. <laughs> Um, because that's how bad it was at the time. Uh, this, I, I, I was excited to talk about this because I watched this clip way too often for my own good. Uh, what basically Alan Carr did was he sort of saw, he hadn't made a movie in a while and he sort of saw the, you know, relatively thankless task of hosting the Oscars as a way to get back into Hollywood's good graces. So he said, you know, I'm going to stage this huge theatrical song and dance production number. I'm going to wow everybody. Uh, with with a bevy of talent, and uh, I'll get back in Hollywood's good graces. So what he did was he unfortunately combined several of his favorite things. One was sort of a San Francisco camp sensibility, uh, which is where he got the idea to have Snow White be sort of this de facto host intro, uh, you know, singer for the beginning of the ceremony. And so he brings in this naif, you know, who, this poor actress, this 22-year-old woman who just thought it would be exciting to perform at the Oscars, gets saddled with uh, speaking in this stilted, squeaky Snow White voice and walking down the aisle singing about how great it is to be Snow White and being in Hollywood and looking at stars. And you just see all of Hollywood shrink and cower before her. I mean, it's it's astounding to watch her shake people's hands and have them look like they just wish the floor would open up and swallow them whole. I mean, and this is just the beginning of it. I mean, we should probably get into it from there, but that's just the beginning of what was a true disaster. Yeah, let's actually um, take a short little listen to just a, a tiny snippet of Eileen Bowman singing as Snow White. The ones you have made in the annual Oscar parade. Yes, we only have stars for you. 
yeah, as you can hear, her 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 warbling did not always hit right, but also she's having to sing in this very odd odd voice. So I I, I also don't blame her. Um, but she's not the only person that sings, is she? <laughs> no, that's after after a weird interlude uh, where they they restage this sort of iconic uh, you know LA venue, the Coconut Grove, on stage, and he trots out Merv Griffin, who had a hit in the fifties. And Carr thought would be somehow great, you know, <laughs> the kids of today would be psyched to see Merv Griffin warbling his hit from, you know, 40 years prior. Uh, then we cut to Rob Lowe coming out on stage, announced as Snow White's date for the night. And the two of them proceed to sing a cover <laughs> a cover of Proud Mary, Rolling on the River. <laughs> and it's just... It's, I mean, here, we, we should probably take a listen to this, too, because I, I genuinely, in the annals of Hollywood live performances this has got to be one of the worst used to work a lot for Walt Disney starring in cartoons every night and day but you said goodbye to grumpy and sleepy left the dwarves behind came to town to stay Lead lights keep on burning cameras keep on turning I don't understand his ra- like like is like that rasp. I need to hear him sing other things. Like, did he think that that made him sound cool? Is that just his singing voice? Because it just comes out of nowhere. I I have so many questions. So 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 many questions. <laughs> yeah, there's. I mean, it's amazing. He he really does sound like he's trying to go for some sort of gravelly rock and roll like rasp there, and it doesn't sound like Rob Lowe at all. And it definitely doesn't sound like it's hitting any notes, uh, let alone in harmony with Snow White. And what's I mean, what is kind of shocking is, you know, if you look, there's a couple oral histories that have been done of this because it was such a disaster. And he says that afterwards he just went and sat in a green room next to Lucille Ball and they talked about whether or not this would be the end of his career. I love that, which which makes it so sad because uh, she actually comes up in a minute when we discuss Stars of Tomorrow. But um, she ended up dying like a month after this. So I'm glad he got to have that moment with her. But yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a lot. If you haven't seen it and and the clips we've been playing for you make you want to run away from it, I totally understand <laughs> it, but you need to go watch it. It's just something that all of us need to have experienced together. Um, I, I will give it to the kick line that happens towards the end that was visually impressive. They have like these lines of people that look like um, theater ticket holders from like the 1940s, you know, doing this big kick line. And then this giant staircase parts and you see Snow White, again, played by Miss Eileen Bowman, uh, in this like RuPaul runway look. Yes. Um, if you recall, with like this headdress that goes up to the ceiling and this dress that like is is 60 feet wide at, at least with lights on it. Um, girl can't even move. Yeah. <laughs> she, she literally just like stands there, smiles and waves and like can barely turn her head. She's like King George and Hamilton. And uh, everyone's like ooing and aahing and you expect her to like move forward or to like dance a little, do something, but like she can't do any of it. She's just standing there. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it really is. It really does sort of encapsulate the what made it such a colossal misfire, which is it's this it's him attempting to combine you know, all of his interests at once, sort of like a San Francisco camp sensibility, uh, a sort of old school Hollywood glitz and glamour, and sort of a Las Vegas show routine all together. And instead, what happens is they all end up sort of mushing together into this, you know, 
into this weird paste of failed ambition that where none of them succeed. And instead, it just becomes incredibly off-putting for all concerned. And then it, it ends all with Lily Tomlin um, coming out, making everything better, I feel. She makes a few jokes. Yep. They throw a shoe at one point, trying to continue, I guess, the Disney thing of, of Cinderella. She comes down the staircase. Um, so she at least saves it at the end. Yeah, it's a she she write, she recites a couple of Bruce Vilanch written jokes that sort of remind everybody, okay, yes, now the grown-ups are in charge again. It's going to be okay. <laughs> but even then, I mean, to jump now to our second large component of this Oscars, uh, later on, if you watch the clips provided on YouTube, they are going to introduce this uh, Stars of Tomorrow big musical number in which they bring in 19 quote-unquote stars of tomorrow. Why not 20? I don't know. Um, since according to, uh, there's, again, multiple oral histories of these of this. I know Entertainment Weekly did one in 2018 in which they basically had everyone from Blair Underwood to Holly Robinson-Pete uh, to, um, I believe even Christian Slater was involved in that one, saying, like, basically, it was just like they'd run into somebody uh, at the store or um, while grabbing lunch and just be like, oh, I'm doing this thing at the Oscars. Do you want to be a part of it? Like, it just seemed like this, like, weird growing thing, which um, probably makes sense with how, like, weird it ended up being. Um, But to introduce it, they bring out Walter Matthau, who does his own bit for, like, a few minutes. And he's actually not there to introduce the musical number. He's there to introduce Lucille Ball and Bob Hope, who then come out to an applause that lasts an entire minute. I timed it when watching the <laughs> clip again before this. Uh, who Then they do their own bit for a while and then introduce this musical number. And I think this is a little bit of what we were talking about with the uh, the success of the 2020 Hostless Oscars is that there they kind of just got rid of any of the host bit moments and let people, you know, I think we had the Maya Rudolph and Amy Poehler moment at one point where they, where they got to riff for a significant amount of time. But other than that, it just kept chugging along. Yeah. Versus versus this Oscars, it was like and they didn't have a host, so they were just letting everyone come out and give their opening monologue, <laughs> which is insane. But again, they're all legends, which was great to see. But then we get to this performance. Uh, and I mean, I guess walk me through your initial thoughts. Yeah, so this performance, I mean, first of all, the conceit on its face is already sort of absurd, right? The stars of tomorrow. It's literally just a guessing game. Uh, here's some people we think might be successful in Hollywood. You know, a few of them had already become stars in their own right. I mean, Corey Feldman is is on the stage, and this was at the height of his sort of Michael Jackson worshiping phase, where he's literally trying to do the moonwalk and and all that kind of stuff. We've got Patrick Dempsey out there, uh, you know, right around Can't Buy Me Love era uh, fame. So there are some people who are successful, but then there are other people that they're just sort of gambling on. Uh, it's very interesting to see, you know, I mean, in some ways successfully, I mean, Ricky Lake, as you you know, as, if you've seen it, Ricky Lake is one of the people who at that point was really just uh, a Broadway star, uh, thanks to Harrison. And Blair Underwood had barely done, a, uh, you know, he'd done a, some stuff, but not a ton. Yeah. Um, so they, they'd made good calls, uh, at this number, and it was written especially for the Oscars by Marvin Hamlish, who was behind A Chorus Line, and Fred Ebb, uh, of Candor and Ebb, who was behind everything. Yeah. Um, and, uh, choreographed by Kenny Ortega. Yeah, yeah. And who most of our listeners had... probably know from High School Musical at this point. <laughs> yes. Um, it, it seemed like it, it actually started off not bad. Um, we, we started off with, with, uh, Blair Underwood and, uh, Holly Robinson Pete, then at that time just Holly Robinson uh, singing, and, and it doesn't sound bad. Let's give that little bit just a listen. Someday I'll be the one who 
walks up here accepting the prize my Oscar will come and I'll grab him with tears in my eyes so they're not the strongest vocals but they're totally fine um yeah it's a it's a classic sort of generic old school you know br- number like Oscar number yeah um, and but then it gets like it gets weird to me. One of the weirdest moments is Corey Feldman, who I, I guess in these oral histories has said like basically Kenny Ortega was obsessed with the fact that he'd been working with Michael Jackson, so was like let's lean into that. And he's doing Michael Jackson dance moves, and he's wearing like like the the beat it look I think uh, with like <laughs> the red jacket. Um, and and his little bit. Let, let's just listen to to that like moment. Of course, listening to it doesn't let you see the dance, so you do have to go see the video um, yeah, to, to see absolutely. the dance. But it's it's, and then it starts to get a storyline, right? With with Chad Lowe's character being like, "I don't sing and dance. That's not what serious actors do." It's so weird, which is yeah, like odd. Ch- <laughs> Chad Lowe goes into this sort of yeah, like I am an actor, sir, and it's you know it's this long thing that's it ends up sort of setting up as as obviously like a punchline bit where then we cut right to you know, people goofing around and falling, you know, I believe it's uh, Patrick Dempsey who falls flat on his back, does a Pratt fall. Uh, but really, it does seem like they literally just let everybody, you know, they asked everybody, hey, what do you, what physical talents do you have? Let's, and just, and just let them do that, you know, logic or common sense be damned. So you end up with, you know, Ricky Lake doing some soft shoe. You end up with Christian Slater coming in halfway, two thirds of the way through it to do sword fighting, uh, like, like stage combat. Uh, and then, you know, and you end with these sort of up and down dance maneuvers from, yeah, a variety of people. You know, there's a there's a ballet bit at one part. And it's all supposed to somehow tie together under this rubric of we're all stars of tomorrow doing our thing. But that's that's I mean, that's about as coherent a through line as saying, hey, we're all breathing right now. So let's keep doing that. Yeah, I mean, you do you get some impressive like you get some some ballet from uh, actors named Tracy Nelson and D.A. Pauly yep. and some some impressive tapping um by Savion Glover um yeah. but it's just it's just it, but again, it's like it's the kitchen sink where they were just like and now this. Yeah. Uh and and it's it goes for 9 minutes long. So they get points for stamina um which you know, I got to give it to them because I don't think we've even been discussing the musical number for 9 minutes. <laughs> um so to imagine them like running around and they run up and down that giant staircase oh, yeah, they don't uh, like stop. multiple times. So you know, I give it to them for that, but it was just it was very very odd and they've talked in the years since about how it was almost even a curse for a lot of them. They feel like it, it was a laugh they became a laughing stock. Yeah, it's uh, akin, it's akin to winning the the best new artist Grammy, right? It's a bit of a <laughs> it's a bit of a noose around your neck. Uh, yes. Um, but you know, uh, it, 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 for some of them, I, it made me impressed. I didn't know Jolie Fisher could sing like that. I d- didn't, you know, there was some impressive stuff. Patrick Dempsey does have a nice dance moment. Uh, I'll give it to them. Um, but speaking of best new artist uh, Grammys, I, I we certainly will have you back on uh, McLeavy uh, to talk as Grammys approach to talk about music. But any other time you want to come on and talk about award shows, we would love to have you on Push the Envelope. But I, I want to thank you for for taking the time today to talk about this train wreck. And uh, hopefully we won't have, uh, or maybe maybe hopefully we will have some train wrecks to talk about uh, in April after after the Oscars. I mean, if anything, I hope that maybe 
they're, tr they're such a train wreck that we can get something akin to the open letter that 89 Hollywood actors, including Gregory Peck, uh, Lucille Ball, and other esteemed members of Hollywood uh, wrote after this awards ceremony, the 1989 awards, bemoaning it and saying that it cheapened and ruined Hollywood. Oh, well, I'm I would hate to see what they had to think about uh, 2020 Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you again so much for joining us, McLeavy. Uh, but Push the Envelope is not over. Uh, as McLeavy leaves, um, we are now welcomed by our very own Cameron Sheets. I am joined now by the fantastic Cameron Sheets. Cameron, thank you so much for, for joining us for this uh, second half of this episode. And uh, I couldn't be more pleased to have you come on to talk about your interview with Gugu Mbatha-Ra. Uh, yes, thanks for having me. I'm so happy to be here. And to talk about Gugu Mbatha-Ra, that's what I'm doing most of the time anyway. Why not record it? <laughs> fair, um, fair. So you got to sit down with her over Zoom and discuss a bunch of stuff with her uh, for a popular feature we have on the site called Random Roles. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that and, and how it went with Gugu? Oh my gosh. Well, Random Roles has always been my favorite feature on the site. I mean, you know, back before I was on staff, it's just, it's just always such a cool, holistic look at an actor's career. I mean, essentially, it's just random roles. We're, we're talking to these actors who have been in so many projects and just being like, hey, remember this one? <laughs> and it usually brings up a lot of great anecdotes, a lot of great stories, some behind the scenes stuff. I think like traditionally, the thought is that like, if we're talking to someone for random roles, it's like one of the great character actors. And and that's definitely true with Gugu Mbatha-Ra. But I think she is also a little bit younger. She's, she's, I guess, in terms of her career in Hollywood, she's only a decade into her career here. But I really wanted to talk to her for this part because she's someone that has been in just about every genre of everything imaginable. And regardless of the genre, she just completely kills it. She's a traditional scene stealer, I think you could say. So I was really excited to talk with her just because there, again, she, she's done it all. I think the day that we did talk was the day after the 10 year anniversary of the premiere of Undercovers, which if you remember, that was the J.J. Abrams spy show. She was one of the mm -hmm. leads in that. Um, so that was my introduction to her a decade ago. Prior to that, she had done a lot of great theater work. Um, she had done a lot of British television, Doctor Who. But Undercovers was really, as she says in the interview, what brought her to the States, brought her to America. And since then, it's just been this really great, varied career. I think cinematically, her breakthrough was in Ama Asante's period piece, Belle, um, which is a historical biopic. And most recently, she's been in this historical biopic called Misbehavior, which is kind of like one of my favorite genres of movies, this very like polite British dramedy. <laughs> um, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about the role she plays in that. Yeah, this is a really interesting movie in that it's it's kind of telling two stories that are both centered around this single event, which is the 1970 Miss World competition. Now, half of the story follows a group of feminist women's from the women's liberation movement in, in 1970 as they're protesting this pageant this year, which is, is hosted in London, hosted by Bob Hope, who's played by Greg Kinnear in some like nice prosthetics in this. But then the other half of the movie, we're kind of getting the view of what this experience was like for the contestants of the 1970 Miss World pageant, specifically the eventual winner, Miss Grenada, Jennifer Hostin, who Gugu Mbatha-Raw plays. And 
I mean, Jennifer Hosen is notable within this, the history of this competition because she was the first non-white winner ever. So, so on one end, you're getting these women that are wanting to tear down, well, just call out the pageant for what it is, which is like a very, I think they talk a lot about it being like this cattle herding sort of thing, you know, trotting out these women. It's very, it can be very misogynistic. But then on the other end, you see it through the eyes of Jennifer Hostin, Gugu's character, and you realize that it can be this kind of empowering thing, especially for women like her who've been marginalized. Um, so it, it's pretty fascinating. And you get a lot of just Gugu walking on stage, taking it all in, presenting herself, presenting this outward, I guess, poise, composure. But then you see so much emotion and fear and anxiety and it's all swirling in her eyes. And it's just one of those classic, like, there's a lot going on in this movie, but like Gugu Mbathara really draws you in with what she's doing. She, and she does that throughout her career. So I was very excited to talk with her about this project. It felt like a nice in to look back at her career so far. Well, let's take a listen to your conversation uh, about misbehavior, uh, about Black Mirror San Junipero, about so many of her projects. Uh, let's Let's take a listen to all of it. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Oh, thanks for having me. It's such an honor. Uh, I know quite a day that we're having, so I really appreciate your time. Um, I think for the sake of time, let's kind of dive right in. So let's start off with Misbehavior, which is just so, so lovely. And of course, you're playing Jennifer Hostin, who is such a great role model in real life. And I know that you got to meet with her before. I'm curious, kind of a two-pronged question. I'm curious what maybe you, you learned from her. And then the second half of that is then going on to actually be Jennifer, was there a sense that you wanted to mimic her or were you kind of making the character its own thing for the sake of the movie? Yeah, um, well, you know, I was privileged enough to get to meet with Jennifer Hostin, which is a real honor. I mean, it's always a bit nerve wracking getting to play a real person because, you know, you want them to, you know, you want their approval in a sense. You don't want them to hate what you're doing, but you also want to, you know, stay true to the story. And obviously this film, Misbehavior, focuses on just one aspect of Jennifer's life, a very small aspect. I mean, it had a great impact, but it's not the Jennifer Hostin story. It's not, you know, it's it's specifically around the event of Miss World in 1970. So, yeah, I got to meet her. I actually um, suggested we meet in Grenada, which uh, was really fun. I wasn't sure if she was going to take me up on it. <laughs> <laughs> but 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 she was game and, and um I went with my mom and she brought her daughter and she gave us a tour of the island which was amazing and you know along the way I got to listen to her accent and you know just ask her questions and hear stories of, of the event and her perspective on it and everything and it was just really enriching to have that time with her and to build a relationship with her so that I felt like I could ask her anything I needed um you know and in terms of being her I mean it was it was really special I think because we'd spent that time together as well she even lent me one of the dresses that she wore in the real competition um this gold sort of crocheted uh sort of gown that, that had sort of trousers and then a sort of crocheted sort of sort of beaded top I mean it was very unusual and she kept it all these years and sent it to our costume designer <laughs> in a shoe box in London and um you know with a couple of alterations and a few things I was able to wear it in the film so that that really imbued me with a sense of wow she really wore this dress you know I think that you can't sort of mistake how how special it is to sort of have that energy and also in some ways you know her blessing yeah certainly well so part of what I think is so fun about watching you in in this film is 
so often you're in these scenes where you're in the show or in rehearsal and you're not necessarily saying anything and, and you're projecting this outward demeanor of composure, but there's so much in your eyes. There's so much. And we can tell there's so much going through our head. And yeah. I mean, as an actor, how, how do you not get in your head about like trying to project something different than what's actually out on the surface? <laughs> yeah, well, I think that was one of the things that I got from Jennifer is that she is very poised. And I think there is, you know, this is a woman that had elocution lessons as a young girl. And even though she grew up in Grenada, I think, you know, the idea of the Queen's English was very much something that people were aspiring to, even with the sort of Caribbean lilt, you know, um, and her dad was a lawyer. And, and I think she felt like she was always trying to be respectable and, um, you know, proper. There was a, there's a sense of properness uh, to her, you know. So, and, and also, I mean, she's a very watchful person when you meet Jennifer in real life. I mean, she, she actually has now um, become a trained psychotherapist. And I think, you know, her, her observational nature is definitely there, the way that she watches and observes people. So, so I was trying to get that going as well. But, um, but yeah, I think there's that thing of, you know, there's a few private moments in the film where Jennifer's sort of you know, combing her hair in the mirror. But but otherwise, I think that a lot of the time in the competition, there is an awareness that they are on show. And there is this sense, I think Jennifer at least very much saw herself as an ambassador for her country. Um, you know, a lot of people had never even heard of Grenada. And it was Grenada's first time in the competition. And it still didn't have its independence from England at that time. So So I think there was that sort of push and pull of her trying to be professional but also like you say a lot going on under the surface um I kind of wanted to use this as a transition I know we don't have a ton of time so I want to jump through a couple different projects now another performance of yours where there is this sort of knowing performing within the performances beyond the lights which is just an absolute favorite of mine oh, um and I, I hope that more and more people continue to come to it I think that Gina Prince Bifoot the director has had a pretty big year thanks to the old guard and well, first of all, I'm curious if you got to see the old guard yet. <laughs> I did. Yes, yeah. I, got, I got to see an, uh, um just before it came out on Netflix. I got to see a secret link, which was really, yeah. really exciting. And I'm so proud of Gina. I mean, she's just, you know, she totally deserves such a massive platform for her work. And, um, you know, having worked with her so intimately on Beyond the Lights, I'm just so excited that, you know, this film, uh, The Old Guard has, had, has been such a blockbuster for her. And um, I'm just excited for what she does next. Yeah, of course. Well, you said intimacy, and I have this kind of thinking that surely you two would have had to have had quite a symbiotic relationship to, to make this film. I mean, this is a very personal movie for her. It asks a lot of you emotionally. How did that relationship form? Yes, it was really a process. I have to say, you know, I think I, you know, quite traditionally auditioned for the part and had a second audition and then I got the role and then really you know the work began because it wasn't initially an easy project to finance I think that initially um you know the studios involved maybe wanted a real pop star you know to, to play the role and then Gina was like no that's not the point like it's the, the point is her evolution and if we're bringing the baggage of a pop star we already know it's going to be harder to you know to really understand and care for her emotional fragility you know so Gina really really fought for me for that role and I think probably there were many opportunities when it could have been easier to get it financed to cast uh, you know a big star uh, you know at the time and um so so I really really you know 
um, ever grateful to her for that. And, you know, we just spent time together doing research. We we went to the Grammys and we went backstage. We did Gina Put Me Through My Paces with many dance rehearsals and singing and many, many experiences that we had. We made a teaser of the film, like a short film version of the film before before we got financing so all of those experiences I think bonded us together (laughs) um and you know that happened over you know a couple of years really Mm -hmm. uh, before we got to shoot the film so so by the time we were actually there you know we'd spent a lot of time together of course and her attention to detail I mean you see it everywhere I know that she worked with you know, actual people in the industry to not only, of course, write the songs, I know the dream worked on some of the songs, but then the costuming and everything. And it's, it's incredibly, it's just such a moving movie. And I I mean, was there from a performance aspect, what was the hardest part of having to become a pop star? Um, Gosh, there were so many challenges, but I loved that. You know, I loved the transformation. And I think, you know, obviously there's the superficial elements of the hair and the makeup for, for you know, the Noni sort of pop star character. But I think what I loved was that I got to shed all of that, you know, in the same role. You know, I think sometimes you get the glamorous role or you get the more raw, you know, no makeup role. <laughs> And this character sort of had it all. She had the whole gamut. Um, You know, I mean, it was challenging just the stamina of doing the rehearsals and and working on a music producer schedule, which is very different to a film schedule. You know, music happens often at night and, you know, different hours and and, and filming often starts, you know, with military precision very early in the morning. So that was kind of an adjustment. Um, But, you know, and the costumes themselves were quite challenging to wear and just the physicality and owning that sort of sexual sort of uh, ferocity you know in the dancing and and everything that uh was part of Noni's persona was was a challenge but it was it was really fun I mean again truly a favorite of mine so I thank thank you for that <laughs> um I also wanted to of course bring up San Junipero which I think everyone still looks back on fondly you know upon recent rewatch, I was shocked how moved I still was. I mean, you know, knowing where we're going, it's so effective. And we just so infrequently see queer stories with a happy ending. So I think that makes a huge difference. But I wonder if you have a sense of I mean, why is this the episode that stands out so fondly in many people's memories? <laughs> well, I think everybody tells me it's the only sort of Black Mirror episode that is sort of optimistic and hopeful. And, you know, I mean, Charlie Brooker is such a genius. You know, all of the concepts that he comes up with every episode could be a movie or could be its own TV show. I mean, they're just such brilliant, prophetic sort of terrifying ideas that he has for the world. And uh, and I think, you know, I think there's also the nostalgia of the 80s that everybody has, you know, that music, the clothes, and and just a love story, I think, at, the, at its heart, you know, just really with these characters and, you know, my character, Kelly, just so vivacious and fun-loving and just um, the idea of mortality, I think, as well, is something that's just so universal and, you know, love that transcends time. And um, I don't know, I just think that there's a lot there that just kind of works on you, in your soul, you know, and how old is your soul and all of those <laughs> questions that I kind of love, you know, about about the show. Of course. And yeah, the nostalgia of the 80s, the music. I mean, the music is, how can you not fall in love with that too? <laughs> Did you have, do you have a favorite 80s song? I mean, it has to be Belinda Carlisle's Heaven is a Place yeah, on Earth. Right? I mean, once you've got that in your head, it's there. It's there. <laughs> <laughs> um, another Netflix project you were involved with, I was sad to see was just, well, it was announced that it wasn't getting a second season, was the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance series. 
Um, I wondered, I mean, was that news, did that news come as a surprise? I wasn't sure how, how keyed in they well, had. I only signed up to do that one. So I think it was all, you know, I, I, I wasn't sure what was going to happen with it. So I wasn't sort of banking on another one. But, um, but you know, such a special thing for me, you know, to work on a Jim Henson show. I think growing up with things like Fraggle Rock <laughs> and, you know, Jim Henson's the storyteller and, you know, all of that. And obviously the Muppets and, you know, um, there's just so much there that, that just to be able to voice one of those puppets was just kind of my childhood dream. So, so I'm happy to have done it. You know, you're doing the voice of Celadon, of the character. Did you, how aware were you of the world? Did you get to see any of what it would look like beforehand? Yeah, I mean, they sent us, the episodes were filmed already, actually. And the way it works, you know, with animation, there, there are different processes, you know, some types of animation, you do the voice first, and then they animate around the voice. But but with the, the Jim Henson puppeteers, you know, they're such artists in themselves. They had already filmed all of that. So you're sort of doing the voice to what's already created, which is in a way more technical, not to spoil it for anyone, <laughs> but as an actor, there's certain things that have already been set in place that you're, you're bringing life to. So, so yeah, it was, it, was, it was kind of challenging, I have to say, on a technical level. And we were able to see everything before, and they sent me this massive sort of Bible of the dark crystal in the mail that, you know, I, I just had everything on the original and all the imagery and everything just to sink my teeth into, so that was really fun. Wow, that's a Henson Geek stream to see yeah. that. <laughs> Um, I want to jump into another. So actually, just yesterday was the 10 year anniversary of the Undercovers pilot airing. What? Which, yeah, which is yeah. wild. Yeah. The, the 22nd. I thought it was 10 years that I was actually making it. But no. Oh, the pilot. The pilot, I, because I think that was a little earlier. There was something, I mean, you know, I was coming into this as a huge J.J. Abrams Lost fan. So I was like very primed and I think they were kind of capitalizing on that. But yeah, it's it's been 10 years since that aired. And <laughs> do you, I mean, of course, gone too soon, but do you have fond memories of, of working on that project? Yeah, you know, it was, it's, in some ways, it's a bit of a blur because it was, it was really, you know, a baptism of fire for me because it was my first job in America, my first TV show, my first lead role. Before that, I just, you know, I'd, I'd done TV in the, the UK, but I think doing network television in LA was just such a culture shift for me. And, you know, JJ Abrams directing the pilot, producing the show, you know, and the ambitions of the scope of the show, you know, every episode we were in a different country, even though we didn't leave LA, you know, and there was action and different accents and um, yeah, huge fond memories actually, you know, and I've been reflecting on it recently, I think as well, just thinking about, you know, 2020 being such a uh, unusual year and looking back at 2010 and just, that was a big shifting year for me as well in, in a very different way. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm so glad to have done it. And it really did set me up for, for everything else to come. So um, yeah. Really right. Well, yes. And I mean, as you said, it was it was kind of your introduction to Hollywood. I mean, in, at 10 years later, is there anything you know now that maybe you wish you had known at the time? <laughs> oh what a question. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I would do anything differently. And it's so, it's so funny, isn't it? Because you sort of... Um, you evolve. I think, you know, you become more resilient and, um, you know, certainly that's obviously being tested for us all the time at the moment. But I think, 
Yeah, I think just staying optimistic and staying playful. And, and I think, you know, certainly in the break that I've had this year of being at home, coming back to work with a renewed sense of, of play and just how lucky I am to, you know, be in an imaginary world and appreciating the fact that it's it's pretend, you know, <laughs> the stakes of pretend, you know, I think in in um, in the real world, there's so much uncertainty and volatility at the moment, there is a comfort in, in going into mm-hmm. into a sort of story. So I've really um, found a lot of solace from that. Of course. And as a quick aside, your paintings, I've seen the paintings you've done and they're, they're oh. so beautiful. Oh, thank you. Multi-talented. <laughs> Um, that is a nice transition to another thing I had to make sure we brought up was fast color. I'm such a huge fan of that. I think, you know, it builds such a, a fascinating world that never really felt all that far off from ours. And I think just considering how this year has been feels maybe even okay. more so. I wonder if you, oh, sorry, what was that? No, I was going to say, I remember back early when all the toilet paper was just impossible to find and going into the store in LA and texting a photo to Julia Hart and saying, this supermarket looks like the store in fast color right now. There's a few tins on the shelf and just empty shelves. And, you know, we shot that scene in this sort of near future or parallel universe idea of, you know, and the idea of the drought and climate change and water being this thing that was just so highly prized. So, yeah, it's kind of eerie how how close that feels or so many parallels that you can draw, you know, even now. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, along those lines, I was wondering what hope can we glean from, you know, if we rewatch this movie, is does it give us hope for what we're going through right now? Oh, well, I hope so, because, you know, it really is about women finding their power and finding this power deep within them that actually has always been there, but they just didn't know how to harness it or they were afraid of it. And I think, you know, now more than ever, I hope that, that young women watch it and feel empowered by it and uplifted and you know even though a character like Ruth has had her struggles and she's flawed and you know she's not a great mother and she's been scared of her um you know of how how powerful she really is I think there is you know there's such a solidarity in those women you know there's three generations of women that they need to come together in order to really rise and and so um so yeah i hope that i hope that people will will still kind of get some inspiration from it yeah well so that makes me think of you've you've been in a number of i would say sci-fi genre projects i mean you've you've of course there's bell which is such a landmark in your career i think that you've really moved through these different perceived genres and and kind of I don't know if if you're to thread a needle through the roles you've taken, there is always this sort of perseverance, I think, kind of comes through. I mean, especially in something like Belle. Again, that's, you know, you're you're working in period pieces and it's not often you see non-white characters in period pieces that aren't the help, unfortunately. So, I, I mean, something like that is is truly, I mean, you just don't see that. I wonder, I mean, how much... Looking back at Belle, sorry, I just threw a lot of words out there, but <laughs> but looking back at Belle, I mean... What what does it mean for you to to have taken on a role like Dido? Yeah, you know, for me, it was exactly that. I think growing up on Jane Austen adaptations and Dickens adaptations at home in the UK, so many period dramas that we make, you know, and I'd never seen myself in them, you know, literally. And um, 
And to be able to know that this was a real story, that this wasn't, you know, this wasn't somebody doing colorblind casting or any kind of imposing any extra concept onto it, but like Belle really existed and there was a painting about her and this is part of our history. And just to be able to show that perspective, I think, was really special. And the fact that Amara Sante wanted her to be such a nuanced character, you know, and that it was complex, that she was dealing with not just issues of race, but class and gender and all of those things that, you know, are still very prevalent today, you know, in her sort of being able to feel comfortable in her own skin and um and in her society and you know the difference between I guess how you see yourself and and what the world endows upon you you know um those are always kind of themes that we that we talked about in the film so so yeah and and again you know a beautiful romance a sumptuous you know a different English rose if you like you know and, and um and that to me was always really 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 special to be a part of yeah I just rewatched that as well and really <laughs> beautiful one it's been very fun to go through all your work again oh in preparation God, for this. Like way more fresh on them than I am yeah <laughs> okay one final question and this feels like a curveball especially now but um, you were in Jupiter Ascending, which is, a, is such an adventurous movie. And Famulus, your role, you've got horns and ears. And I just kind I know, of I wondered. Didn't have the ears. I kept the ears. That's exactly what I was going to ask. Ears. Yeah, I have them somewhere in a box. I mean, they, they used to throw them away every day. Yeah. You know, and I'd be like, what are you going to do with those? And they're like, well, you know what? Because once the glue, once they unglue them, you can't glue them back on, you know. So they'd have several of them. And so they would just chuck them. And I was like, I'm keeping these. That is amazing. I don't know what I'm going to use them for. I did have them on a bookcase. Um, (laughs) I'm very excited for the future when a relative one day is like going through boxes and they're just like, what is this? What are these? Yeah such a funny memory that's great well i cannot take up any longer of your time but i so appreciate every minute this has been so wonderful again oh, thank what, you what i'm so glad i'm so glad you you liked all the stuff thanks for going into of the course room. of course <laughs> um but thank you again and congrats on misbehavior i'm excited for people to see it it's 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 a lot of fun it's it's and eye-opening i truly just did not know <laughs> yeah exactly all right thank you again thank you bye So yeah, that's Gugu. She is just, as you could hear, entirely lovely and so thoughtful and intentional with all of her choices and just really kills it no matter what she does. I, she's been a favorite of mine for a while and she's seems in, in, in my estimation to be an actor that's just like continually on the rise. And I think like, She's got some big things in store. Um, we didn't get to talk about it in this interview, unfortunately, but she is, she has a, an undisclosed role in the upcoming Disney Plus Loki series. So, you know, kind of getting her into the Marvel universe kind of feels like that's going to be this big thing. But I don't know. I think her body of work really speaks for itself. She's done some incredible stuff thus far and is going to just continue to do incredible work. So she's someone to always keep an eye on. Yeah, I remember, God, uh, years ago, getting to interview her for a movie called Larry Crown with Julia Roberts and Tom Hanks. And it wasn't the the best movie, <laughs> but she elevated it. And she is such a fantastic presence, both uh, on screen and off. So I am 
so glad that you got the chance to speak with her. And I'm so glad that you were able to come here on Push the Envelope. I want to take this opportunity to thank you and thank McLevy and Gugu for being a part of the episode. And of course, you can catch Misbehavior on demand uh, wherever you happen to get your streaming movies these days. Uh, But that is going to do it for this episode of Push the Envelope. Before we go, I, of course, uh, am going to ask you all to comment and subscribe and rate this podcast so that Apple and uh, Spotify and all of those places think we are just the best podcast around. (laughs) Um, But that's it for today's episode. We will see you all next Thursday. And until then, bye. Bye. This episode of the AV Club's Push the Envelope was brought to you by producer Michaela Heck and sound engineer Ryan Allen.